Coming up next, it's live from my office. Hi, this is Steve Cochran for David Hochberg, the title sponsor of Live from My Office and Team Hochberg. Right now, interest rates have come down a bit, but they're still high. Having said that, life happens. People are still going to need to buy homes. And when you buy homes, you're going to need a mortgage. And when you need a mortgage, who would you turn to? There's a million options and a ton of advertising and promotion. That advertising and promotion sometimes is less than honest. You know what you'll never get from Hochberg? less than honest sometimes i'd argue he's too honest but he actually wants to save you money so even now with these interest rates being what they are if you have to do a mortgage there's only one place i would call the place i've recommended to my sister to my son and my daughter the the place i've used and they've used it is team hochberg david hochberg they're the people to get it done and by the way if you're a company hr benefits manager He's doing a new thing, an affinity program that it, it's, it's free and it's, a, it's another great way to incentivize future hires at a time when more people need uh, great uh, people to come to work for them. What are you offering them? This is a great benefit. Again, doesn't cost you a thing and it's going to help your new employees get themselves mortgages and the best mortgage help from David Hochberg and Team Hochberg. So you HR benefit managers ask about it at 855-56-DAVID or 56david.com. Team Hochberg and David Hochberg, they're getting it done. Michael O'Hanlon, Director of Research and Foreign Policy. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, look, he's a terrific resource and a friend of the show. He's at the Brookings Institute. And on this Ukraine Independence Day, an important guy to uh, talk to and check in with. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Nice to talk to you again. By the way, are the kids back in school? Uh, I think uh, around here it's mostly next Monday. Okay. I'm on the jurisdiction, you know, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's about to happen. All right. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Um, All right. So, Michael, let's talk about the other side of the world. It's easy for us to move on with our lives and not be focused on what the people of Ukraine are going through every single day. And I think we all apply this vision of Russia being this monolithic monster that has no problems. And we're just waiting for the terrible news that they've wiped Ukraine out. What's the truth of what's happening and particularly today on Ukraine Independence Day? Yeah, well, you're right that it's not that. It's not some Russian victory. And, of course, Russia tried for the quick win. That was probably part of why they launched the war. They really thought they could pull it off. And uh, Ukraine was amazing. And the United States helped with intelligence and other uh, contributions, but non, non-combat contributions. But, but at this point, I think it's fair to say that we're in a grind, that Ukraine has stymied further Russian advances over the course of the middle of the summer. Russia did make headway, as you know, in the spring, mostly in the east, after having gained some ground in the south in the, in the wintertime and the early part of the war. So it now has this swath of Ukraine, which is almost 20 percent of the country's territory. And Ukraine really hasn't managed to take back much of that. They've taken back a few towns here and there. But as you know, as we all know, reading about these high Mars, high mobility artillery rocket systems, they're getting more advanced weaponry and they're gearing up for some semblance of a fall offensive. It's sort of already begun because they're using high Mars to attack key command sites, key weapons warehouses and bridges that the Russians use to reinforce troops in certain places in the expectation they can sort of half starve those Russians out of 
some of the locations they hold, especially in the South. So I think we're going to see that strategy play out through the fall. You mentioned the time of year. Um, it's still going to be, quote unquote, fighting season over there for maybe maybe two more months, two and a half, somewhere into late October, November. Uh, their weather is even worse than where I grew up in the Finger Lakes in New York or what you guys experience in Chicago. So once right. you get to November, December, uh, you, you don't really get these beautiful frozen fields to drive on. You get mush and uh, it, it's really hard to operate. So I think by that point, there's a chance the two sides will reassess their prospects, and then we'll then we'll see if there's any hope for negotiation over the winter. And I hope Ukraine takes back some land in the meantime. I am skeptical they can take back a lot. Michael, it probably goes without saying, but I'm sure Ukraine is still bracing for Russian wrath over the uh, car bombing that, that claimed the life of Alexander Dugan's daughter, Daria. Yeah, that's a good point. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, somebody in Russia did that and perhaps even partly to create a pretext. But we know that Russia has been trying to go after President Zelensky since the start of the war. And I think I've always assumed they would do it any time they had a shot at him. Now, uh, and I think he's assumed that, too, which is why I think he replaced part of his internal security guard a few weeks ago to make sure there weren't any infiltrators. Right. So uh, that, you know, that's the target that makes the most sense for Russia, because he has become such a symbolic and important, you know, battlefield leader of his own country. He's been, as I think we all agree, pretty amazing. But beyond that, um, you know, I think Putin knows that that kind of an assassination doesn't give him a free license to use a nuclear weapon in response or to attack NATO territory. So the two big possible escalatory moves that I would most fear uh, are not going to be set up in any meaningful way, even by the standards of Russian propaganda by this sort of tragedy. And so I'm not quite sure. Like you, I'm watching. I'm nervous. uh, But I'm not sure I see what the obvious next step is beyond what they're already attempting whenever they try to go after Zelensky. Our our, uh, intelligence folks are great at their jobs. And when they come out with an announcement like they did in the past couple of days, say, if you're an American still in Ukraine, get out, get out now. It's because they firmly believe something really bad is about to happen. Can we take any... um, relief or feel better about the fact that it's late afternoon in Ukraine now and the worst hasn't happened? I don't know. That's a good question. I I, I didn't see that specific uh, t- statement by the intelligence community, but, uh, you know, maybe, as you say, it was tied to Independence Day and thinking there'd be some attacks on cities or to big, you know, throngs of demonstrators or to or people out celebrating. But I think that, you know, Russia can carry out those kind of attacks any day. It sometimes does it anyway without waiting for a special event, but it doesn't see a major utility at the moment in attacking cities with long-range rockets. They, they've done a little bit around Odessa this summer, They once in a blue moon, still in Kiev, but they seem to be withholding that sort of tactic for the moment. And uh, of course, that's not out of the goodness of their hearts. And so it's true that any given day, you should be nervous they might change that. Uh, policy. I'm not sure there was any huge reason to think they would do so on Independence Day per se. Okay. But, um, but as you say, you know, hard to rule that kind of stuff out in the mind of Putin. And sure. so therefore, yes, uh, maybe we, we can start to maybe exhale a wee bit as the afternoon progresses in Kiev and My, elsewhere. Michael, I have a question about the aid. I know the United States just committed another $3 billion in aid. Well, do you see that just continuing as well? Because it doesn't appear to be that there's any end in sight. And especially now to your point where you said the winter is coming, uh, and it's going to be pre- maybe I don't know if it's going to be a ceasefire, but are we just going to pause keep a pause? Right. Are we just going to keep giving more and more aid? And is that really the fiscally responsible thing to do? 
Well, I think we will keep giving a billion dollars a month, more or less. That would be my expectation. And I think the politics will sustain that. As you point out, there's a fiscal side. But, you know, if you put this number in perspective, it's 1% of the federal deficit. It's 10% of what we were typically spending on the Iraq or Afghanistan war uh, at their respective peaks. And the alternative is to watch Ukraine lose. So uh, I think the short answer to your question after saying all that is yes, we'll keep it going. Because yeah. I, I think Americans have the heart and the grit. And the only question really is the defense industrial base and our military stockpiles. Do we have enough stuff to keep shipping? You know, and this is going to lead to a debate in my world about whether the defense industry needs to be sort of ginned up on these sorts of munitions and other things that are being expended at such pace because we've been drawing some of it out of our own stockpile and we can't really keep doing that. So to me, that's the practical question. But I think in terms of the dollars and in terms of the fiscal drain, yeah, I think we can keep it up. We probably need to put our head in the position of saying, look, we're in this war. We're just not fighting it on the ground because giving up Ukraine would be a horrible um, uh, strategy for the defense of this country and Europe in general. Yeah, I think that's pretty well said. I think we are more in this war than we've ever really been in a proxy war. Because in previous wars where we had a strong interest in the outcome and helped supply one side, we didn't really provide this degree of tactical battlefield intelligence. So, for example, if we were helping Israel in the 67 or 73 wars, we could provide a lot of supplies, but they didn't really need our help on the ground to the same extent that I believe we're providing some for Ukraine from all the press reports that I see. So, yeah, I think we're, we're sort of in it at some level, which makes me nervous that right. uh, Putin could change his mind about restraining his fire. He, he knows he can't beat us in an all-out war, but he might want to scare us into thinking that he's reckless enough to start attacking parts of NATO territory where there are you know, supply convoys or other things helping Ukraine. So I'm nervous about this war. I don't think it's under control. And the fact that it's fallen off the headlines is a little bit misleading. I'm glad you're talking about it on your show. And and I hope we keep focusing on it, not just to remember and honor the sacrifice of our Ukrainian friends, but to think about where the uh, conflict may go, where negotiations might have to go in the next few months um, and maybe help Ukraine come up with some ideas in in case it can't win back all the territory, but it wins back some of it. And then it has to decide what to do next, whether to negotiate. Uh, I, I want us to help because I don't want this war to go on like World War One, you know, for four more years. No, of course not. Yeah, I'll let you go. But, you know, you mentioned in the beginning the Finger Lakes. Um, I grew up in Ithaca, New York. What part of the Finger Lakes were you in? Canandaigua, two lakes over. How about that? Uh, yeah. Small it, world it stuff. Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, be well, Michael. Thank you for the help. Thank you all. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Michael. Michael O'Hanlon. You'll always be smarter if you have him on your show. Yeah. I got to be honest with you, I haven't been able to play a whole lot of golf in this 2022 season between the podcast and now uh, getting back on the radio, but I'm hoping to play more. And you know this, if you know anything about me, the place I love to play is Cantini Golf. Cantini Golf in Wheaton. It's one of the best you can play in all of Illinois. Recognized by the Kemper Sports Company with multiple awards this time around. Uh, For being as great as they are, Kemper manages some of the finest facilities in the country. And uh, and Cantini is right there with the big boys. So uh, you need to play it. That's the bottom line. If you love golf, you need to play it. Uh, three great nines, 27 great holes, tremendous practice facility as well, and a staff that loves to take care of you. And if you can tell me another golf course where that's true, I'd love to know what it is. But Terry Hanley and his crew get it right 
at Cantini. The head pro is Matt Tuller, and I sat down with Matt. What I like about Matt is he's given us different ways to think our way around the golf course. One of the questions I asked him when we sat down is, should the average golfer like you and me, should we even have a driver in the bag? Uh, Should we have a three-wood in the bag? Uh, That's a good question. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I I think so. I mean, uh, it's one of those clubs that, for me personally, I find is more accurate off the tee than my driver. I know we're not supposed to be talking about the driver, but... uh, it is the club that I'm able to find the fairway with more off of the tee box. Um, I find that people actually get in more trouble on the par fives trying to get home into with their three wood when they might duff it. Uh, so to me, it's finding that right club off the tee that's going to get you more accuracy, uh, which is can be that three wood. And that's what you need to do then. Take that three wood out of your bag, hit it off the tee more often, and see if your score drops. Thanks to Matt Teller, head pro at cantinigolf.com. At C-A-N-T-I-G-N-Y, cantinigolf.com, 630-260-8197. Julie Bauke is the founder and CEO of the Bauke Group, and I'm sure she's going to be very impressed with my financial plan. Julie, would you like to buy some of the stocks that are in rough shape of mine? Oh, you know, I'll have my people call your people. (laughs) Probably a good call. Uh, ChicagoBusiness.com, quiet quitting. We talked about it last week. Explain what it is, please. So it's, it's, it's not what it sounds like. When you say quiet quitting, it sounds like I'm just going to sit there and do whatever I want and do none of my work. Sort of a passive aggressive, you know, you can't make me sort of thing. Phoning it in. What it really means is you do what's expected to do your job well and nothing more. In other words, it's just a, I think it's a little more aggressive way of saying I'm going to set boundaries for my work life so that I don't burn out and so that I'm of use and, you know, everything I need to be at home and at work. You're kinder than I am about this. My problem with it is, (laughs) and I don't mean to be cynical because in my head I'm being realistic. But go ahead. That there are many people who do get hired under false pretenses and phone it in. And by the way, that's not something new but my larger question would be has it been exacerbated by covid the work from home thing and the desperate need for employees now yeah you know you you will we have always had and will always have people who uh do less than their bare minimum who you know really are goofing off don't want to be there will do just enough to keep their job or not work at all i mean that that's always we're human. That's always going to be there. Um, But what has happened through COVID is in many industries and professions, people were piled on to the extent that it was not reasonable to expect them to even do the work they were assigned. And there, in some cases, there's no end in sight. And we think about the, there's many professions in which there's still a shortage of people to do the work. And so if I'm used to having four people in my department and I only have two, you know for sure that two people are doing four jobs, um, and that you know, and and because now we're hearing about layoffs and you know companies cutting back, et cetera, that is still going to be an issue. And so people, they're, you know, they're going to say, you know, I'm going to do my work, I'm going to do my job I was hired for, and just because you can't find somebody else to do these other jobs doesn't mean that that is now on my desk now and forever. You know, we do all fill in and help out when people are on vacation and we're down in staff. But I think people have, you know, COVID really said, really made a lot of people say to themselves, what am I really doing this for? You know, what what's more important here in my life? You know, what am I giving up? What am I damaging or not building because 
on spending so time and so much time and energy at work. And, you know, I think it, it just, it made people, I don't know, step back and say, you know, is this really how I want to be living my life? And for a lot of people, and frankly, yes, a lot of those people are younger than we are. Uh, the answer was no, I don't. Julia, a phrase that I've heard over and over again with the younger generation or those perhaps just getting out of college and having their first jobs are quality of life. Something that, yeah. you know, Steve and I, 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 I look back at that and, and I mean, I guess that is good in the sense that well, they're young good, enough though. to know, hey, I want my quality of but life. If, but, but it's a reflective point you usually have at 55. Exactly, exactly. So what happened to aspiration? What happened to yes. drive? What well, happened to I, getting well, joy out of work? So you so you also um, may remember that back in the day when um, the model was grab a job, hang on to it for 40 years, and yeah. then you can have fun and relax. Right. And a lot of people turn around and died, you know, within two years yeah. because they, you know, it, it just was not a sustainable model. So I think the answer is somewhere in the middle, you know, the old, and I'm a boomer. So, you know, I, I know what I, you know, I, and I remember those days very well. You know, it was, you know, I don't like my job, like it. You're not supposed to like it. What's wrong with you? Right. And then you know, it was funny the last few years, because I've been doing this career coaching work for 25 years. So I've seen everything kind of ebb and flow. This whole sort of, um, I want, there's more to my life than work. What happened was you had the younger generation saying it and wanting to live their life in a way that honors that. And you had boomers saying, you know, all, you know, clutching their pearls pretty much like <laughs> you, you have to pay your dues. And I translated that into you haven't suffered enough. You know, I'm like, that's, is that really, is that really what we want work to be? You know, and, and I, I'm not saying don't have career goals, don't go after them. But I think the, the right answer for all of us is you know, you're, you're, I mean, my dad, you know, my late father, work was his number one goal. And because of that generation, it was to provide for my family. Right, but right. It, it, at what at what cost? Did not have a great relationship with any of us. Did COVID really? And because he didn't know how. Yeah. Well, my father was the same way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you work, work, and then you know, my dad would go to a second job at night. So mm-hmm. I mean, there, yeah. I know there has to be a happy medium, but did COVID kind of yeah. spoil this? Because now, you know, everybody kind of got used to either working remotely, and now it's kind of a hybrid. So I mean, did did yeah. that kind of spoil things? Yeah. So think about boomers. Okay, so boomers got told, go home, work from home. Well, for those of us, you know, boomers are like, what do you mean? What, 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 how do I do that? You know, I mean, it was, it was so foreign of a concept. I was just complaining that, about this yesterday in a meeting here yes. at Cumulus about the fact that nobody's yeah, in the hallways. Then, right. And then all of a sudden it was time to come back. And many boomers said, yeah, no, thanks. And so we saw a faster retirement slash quit rate from boomers than we've ever seen in the time when people start coming back to work. Boomers said, wait a minute, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have enough money. I'm kind of, um, I kind of like having more on my plate than work. Now, we're also seeing a lot of boomers trying to come back, maybe not into the same type of roles. But, you know, it's, it's everybody has to find their right blend. And so I'm not going to say that any generation or attitude is entirely wrong. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out what works best for you. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I just wonder about the larger societal implications of this, because if you've got an entire generation, the majority of which 
are working to live instead of living to work, which on surface, that phrase sounds, of course, you should work to live, not live to work. But if you don't have that aspiration, if you don't have that drive, money doesn't have to be some evil thing you're chasing. I've gotten great. I'm blessed. I've gotten great joy in my life over the work that I've done in most places. And I've worked for some miserable, corrupt Terrible people, <laughs> terrible, <laughs> awful people. Yeah. But I've also worked for some yeah. incredible people. Yeah. And the people I've yeah. known, worked with, loved through the years, um, I wouldn't want to trade that. And I still think I'm a pretty good dad and I'm a pretty good grandfather. I think there's yeah. a balance yeah. that can be achieved because sure. the flip side of the price you pay is maybe not physical, but you won't make as much money to have the freedom to take the vacations, to pay for the colleges, whatever, down the road. So, yeah, right. you know, there's a price on both ends. Right. Yeah, there is, and and when you, if you're 25 right now, you know, when you get get a couple decades down the road, which sounds like six lifetimes to them, you are going to want to have the money for when you can't work anymore, right? And you want to do those fun things. But think about it. so Gen Z right now, Gen Z age wise is 10 to 25. So there's the 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 oldest Gen Z are the ones in the workforce right now. And they are going to be hit upside the head with responsibilities, with kids, with families, with wanting to have a home. Um, but right now, the, the youngest millennials, and the oldest Gen Z are the ones who are saying, you know, we've seen an awful lot since we've been in the workforce and since we were in college. And so we aren't necessarily going to do it the way you did, mom and dad. Um, but is it, it isn't necessarily going to stay the way we aren't going to always work the way we are today. Yeah, I, I yeah. think I don't want us to panic over nothing. No, listen, right. everything you're describing is great. Look, you're the best at this, so I don't doubt what you're saying. <laughs> I, I, I just think that people need to understand that there is a price on both ends, as you've pointed out. And the concerning thing for me is it sounds like an army of 10-year-olds are going to take over the world because <laughs> the 25-year-olds are going to be phoning it in. Um, and they're yeah, not tall yeah, enough yeah, to get the stuff off the high shelves. <laughs> yeah, in 2030? Well, 74% of the workforce is going to be Gen Z and millennials, and 1.5% will be boomers. Who's going to bring me so my soup? going to have to figure it out. <laughs> Julia Baki at the Baki Group. Thank you for this. Hope we can have you back. You're welcome. Anytime. Thanks, right. Julie. Bye-bye. 30 years plus on the airwaves. You have turned your dial to me. Now you're tuned into my podcast. It's live from my office, Steve. From Ithaca, New York, to Carolina South, W. Cochran, Steve. From Minneapolis, and then Chicago twice, top-rated shows achieved. Sit back, relax, and now listen to my show. When or wherever you are, cause you're on the go. It's live from my office, Steve. Thank you for listening to Live from My Office, a service of Monkey Run Productions. All rights reserved. The podcast is hosted by Steve Cochran, and it's mixed, edited, and produced by me, Ross Cochran. Support the show by subscribing wherever you're listening and by telling your friends about it. Follow Steve on all social media channels, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. 
And make sure you check out this episode's show notes for relevant information discussed during the conversations. You can also email the show directly at thecochranshow at gmail.com with any questions or comments. And that's the best place to tell us about your favorite nonprofit so we can make sure we mention them on the next episode. Steve is available for corporate speaking gigs. He would love to emcee your event. And occasionally, he's funny. Thank you for listening. Head to CochranShow.com for more.